We are in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 2. And I apologize that there's no additional notes tonight. We might actually get through where the notes stop and keep trucking, and I apologize for that. I, I did print out the notes. The printer worked. I had ink. I had paper. I special ordered paper this week so I'd be ready. Came in the mail while I was gone. Uh, in fact, the lady drove through my front yard because she was too lazy to drive out of the neighbor's driveway where she accidentally went and come over to my driveway on the road. So she just drove right across my front yard. I got tracks right across my front yard from the... But she left me the paper. I did appreciate that. So I got paper. And um, special... Very special delivery. Amazon got a call from Mr. Fall. Uh, and they, they, they wanted to know if I wanted reimbursed or getting some reimbursement. I'm like, I don't want money. I just want that lady uh, reprimanded, fired, whatever you need to do so she doesn't drive across anybody's yard anymore. Um, but anyway, um, so I'm very excited to teach what's... And so if we run past the notes, forgive me, you'll get them next week, okay? So... Um, but they're, they're there. They're sitting in my printer right now uh, waiting to come to the, the hole-punching machine, the iron lady, whatever we call her. The, uh, no. No, I, he, he wouldn't get him in time. Okay. Uh, I appreciate that. I was thinking if you go across the other way, I could play tic-tac-toe in the front yard. Okay, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now you can already tell I'm about to go on an anti-Calvinism rant. Uh, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Um, Paul could write the longest sentences known to mankind. And I don't know if it's just the difference between Greek and English or whatever, but whoo! And the, the good thing about it is, is he packs a lot of meat in there. The bad thing about it is, is we can read over, th read through that and go, what? Huh? Huh? And so I'm going to try to uh, break this down. It's going to take a minute. Uh, this, this, this little sentence here is going to take a, a minute. So uh, bear with me. Um, well, I can do it. There. Okay, a grace appeared to all men. First of all, it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation. So what kind of grace? The saving grace. This is the kind that saves. Appears to all men. Now what uh, Calvinism or Reformed theology, as they like to call it today, you'll see your Reformed Bible church or whatever kind of, that the people who teach this theology one of the tenets, one of the five tenets of Calvinism um, is that there is a, it's the L in the tulip, if you know what I'm talking about, the tulip. It's limited atonement. And what this doctrine teaches is that God chose before time to only save a few people 
And he did not pick them based on anything they would do, believe, or say, or be. He just picked them willy-nilly. Uh, however, according to his wisdom, he just picked certain people. And everybody else are damned and there's nothing they can do about it. And they'll, they'll never have an opportunity for salvation. They're born, they, they teach that they're totally depraved when they're born. That's the tea in the tulip. They're, that, that from birth, uh, or from, actually not even from birth, from uh, conception, they are totally depraved and, and wicked and evil. And um, which I'm not sure why they're so against abortion if the, most of it's just killing totally depraved babies that are going to be evil all their lives. But anyway, they're totally depraved is what they teach. And then um, they, they teach that Jesus only died for the ones he's going to save and all the people he's not going to save, he didn't die for. And that if you believe that Jesus died for everybody, uh, and the reason they can't believe that is because if Jesus died for everybody, then everybody has the opportunity for salvation. And they don't want to believe that. They want to believe in it. So they believe in a limited atonement. Jesus only died that the blood of Jesus wouldn't be wasted on those who weren't going to be saved, which is just not true. And there's many reasons why that's not true. But um, what they teach is that basically Jesus' blood was only shed for the elite who are chosen before time. And basically, um, you don't have a choice. You were born depraved, and then because you're one of the chosen, God comes along before you do anything or say anything or believe anything or even can even have faith. In fact, they believe it's impossible for you to have faith without the Holy Spirit zapping you. But because you're one of the elect, God comes along and he zaps you with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit and this allows you to have faith and sanctifies you and then you can come to salvation through faith and then, uh, and then you're one of the, and then you can never be lost. And that's where the eternal security doctrine comes in. So all those things are tied together. Each one of those five false doctrines are tied together. And that's why it's so hard to unteach Calvinism because once somebody's been indoctrinated in it, you pick one aspect of Calvinism and try to deal with that Calvinistic idea. And the whole time that you are showing scriptures that deny it, they're saying, they're in, in the back of their mind going, yeah, but there's, thi there's this and there's this. And all their other false doctrines uh, the five of them uh, make the one that you're refuting impossible to refute. That's why it's, so, it's, it's such a hard thing to get a hold of. That's why you've got to take hold of all five things at once. And, um, and actually, you've got to deal, in my opinion, with the ultimate thing first. And the ultimate thing first to deal with is, is original sin. You've got you've to get past the fact that you inherit original sin. Because that's what I call the original lie from which Calvinism springs. The Calvinism is, is actually something that he borrowed in doctrine from a guy named Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. He was a Catholic priest and a bishop in North Africa in a place called Hippo. And he was a part of two different cults before he finally leaves that and becomes a Christian, but brings all his Eastern mystic cult ideas into the Catholic Church and breeds them together into this hybrid monstrosity that Calvin later comes along and systematically documents into Calvinism or Reformed theology. But it, Calvinism and Reformed theology is actually Augustinism, and it's a horrible scourge. And one of the problems is, is that this, um, and you'll have four-point Calvinists who don't believe in the 
uh, limited atonement one. Because of any of them that are so easy to disprove with multiple scriptures, the, the one that f- seems to be easiest for me is the limited atonement. Because there's just blatant verses, one after another, denying limited atonement. What's good about that is, is what the four-point Calvinists don't admit is that you can't have the other four points of Calvinism uh, without this limited atonement. That's why they came up with limited atonement is because you have to have Jesus only dying for the elect uh, if the other scriptures are going to make sense. And so the way that they defend um, the correct, uh, the, the wrong interpretation of other scriptures from the correct interpretation of other scriptures is by the doctrine of limited atonement. So one of the ways you can try to pull Calvinism down is to remove this, this doctrine. And so what, what people want to say is, well, yeah, uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus died. Sure, he loved me, you know, but it says here it's the salvation has appeared to all men. Now, is everybody saved? Certainly not. The Bible doesn't teach that. But what does it mean salvation has appeared to all? It means that anybody can take it. Salvation is there for anyone who wants it. That's what this verse is saying. And that totally destroys the whole limited atonement and the only elect have the opportunity to get saved and the, the depraved other people can't even choose salvation. This idea that Everybody doesn't get to make a choice and that we don't have a free will choice. See, Calvinists do not, they don't believe we have free will. The person who believes in Reformed theology doesn't believe that you choose or don't choose to follow Jesus. Yeah, you choose, but that's because the Holy Spirit enabled you to and basically forced you to. In fact, I've got, I've got writings of of Calvinists who refer to the Holy Spirit forcing people to come to faith as the divine spiritual rape. Which of course is totally evil and wicked and, and wrong theology. And so this verse in, in 11 here is pretty important. Because it's teaching the grace of God that brings salvation appeared, is available to, has made itself manifest to all mankind. That's important. Look what it says in 1 Timothy 2.4. Who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We already talked about this back in 1 Timothy. God's desire, the desire of God is for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. See, this one blows the Calvinists out of the water as well. Because Calvinism teaches... God only wants to save a few, the elect. And, but this says that God wants to save everyone. See, what the Bible teaches is that God knew we couldn't be saved on our own. So he made a way for us to be saved even though we were corrupted by our sin and our choices. He again gave us another choice where we can choose his grace and forgiveness and to go to heaven or we can choose not to. See what the Bible teaches is who goes to heaven and who goes to hell is based on our choice that he and his love and grace gives us an opportunity to overcome the weaknesses of our flesh and our sin and our guilt and make the choice again afresh to go to heaven not based on our righteousness but based on his. 
in the grace of God, he does this for us. And that's the salvation that's appeared to all men. That means any one of you can be saved. When Reformed theology was very popular in the United States before the Restoration Movement, Christian churches, Churches of Christ came along, this idea of Reformed theology with the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists and uh, the Church of England, which were very dominant in the United States in the early part of its history, people would think that they had to wait for a sign from God that they were one of the elect. There were people in early American history who believed in God, who wanted to become Christians, who went to church, but they never had a sign from God that they're one of the elect and they thought they couldn't be saved. There are other people who gave up on church because they never were chosen as one of the elect. And so they says, well, if I'm not one of the elect, I might as well go sin and live it up and go to hell having fun. And that was a whole problem. And, and people didn't think they could become a Christian even if they wanted to. God had to choose them. They couldn't choose him. That's what they were taught. And so when the restoration movement comes along and says, no, you choose and you can repent, you can choose to repent and be baptized, receive the forgiveness of sins, give the Holy Spirit. When people uh, like Alexander Campbell started writing about it and uh, Barton W. Stone started writing about it and, and people like Walter Scott started going around with the five finger exercise, going into a little small town, going up to the one room country school like on the little house on the prairie and calling all the kids around and he'd teach them, if you want to be saved, you got to be- hear, you got to believe, you got to repent, you got to be baptized, you got to confess, you know, he, the five finger exercise. He'd teach them, go home and tell your parents that. He'd teach to the kids like that. The kids go home and say, this guy just taught us this after school today and he's going to be preaching at the schoolhouse tonight and they didn't have anything else to do there wasn't any tv on it wasn't must see thursday or something they all come to the church house and they and he baptized people he i'm like two thousand three thousand a year for his whole ministry whole churches left denominations whole denominations shut down and the restoration movement spread like wildfire across the western united states they called it the great awakening the spiritual revival and one time they had a a a revival in Cambridge, kentucky and one third of the population of kentucky showed up at the revival uh, make Hillsborough family camp look like chump change. Thousands of people. And there was this revolt because people thought, I can choose. I've got free will. They re- understood the scriptures that they could make a choice to follow Jesus Christ because they'd been taught all their life God's real, God's true. They believed the Bible, but they didn't think they had a choice in there. And the dishonest ones would fake a sign. The dishonest ones would fake that they had some, And the honest ones say, well, I never had. Uh, God never showed me. I guess I'm not one of the elect. And this concept is so important that people understand that anybody, as as it says in Revelation, whosoever will may come. And behold, I stand at the door and knock, and whoever opens up, I'll come in. He, He doesn't force his way in. He doesn't burst in. He knocks. You got to open the door. But through his grace, he desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Look at 1 Timothy 4.10. For this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust the living God who is Savior of all men, especially those who believe. See, Jesus has provided salvation for everybody, but you've got to go, you've got to take it. He's provided, but especially for those who believe. You see, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, then we can receive what he's provided for everybody. Um, There's a a guy who came in our church when we were setting up the other night, and he wanted me to give him money. 
we were just setting up. He waltzes in our church. It's like nine o'clock at night on a Friday night. We were setting up the sound system and he, he wants me to give him money. And I'm like, if you need food, there's food right out there. You need shelter? No, I've got a place to live. Okay, well, you need food? There's food right there. He says, well, that's really heavy. Well, is that heavy in your back? Well, it's going to be heavy when you take it home from the grocery store too. I'm not giving you money. You want food? I've, we've got a blessing box in front of our church that's full of food. You want food? There's food. Whosoever will may come <laughs> and take freely from our blessing box. We provide it because we want the community, if they're in need, to be fed. But they've got to have the wherewithal to come get the food. And when he, he didn't want money for food, he had food. If you're hungry, you're going to take the free food. He wasn't hungry. You could look at him and tell he was well fed. He's a con artist who doesn't want to work and mooches off of Christian's goodwill. Not going to give him any money. God provides salvation if you're willing. If you want it. If you want a relationship with God and you want to go to heaven and you want to live like God and you want to be holy like God, you can be. You want to be a saint? You can be. You want to be forgiven? You can be. You want to change your life and live right? You can. If you don't, you don't gotta. You can choose hell. You can choose sin. You can choose lust. You can choose pride. You can choose burning forever in eternal fire. The choice is yours. But God is everybody's Savior. If they'll have Him, anybody could come to Christ. 1 John 2.2 2, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about this because I've talked about it before. I've talked about it in other classes with you guys, and I think I've talked about it in here before. But here's the thing. When Satan sinned by getting Eve to eat the fruit, God curses Satan. When Eve eats the fruit, God curses her with much pain in childbirth, and your husband's going to be a jerk. Because now she's going to have a sinful husband, and he's going to be the leader of the family, and he's not going to be perfect. Before, she had a perfect husband. But now he's not perfect anymore. And then, when he comes to Adam, he doesn't curse Adam. Adam's sin doesn't lead to Adam himself being cursed, or just men being cursed. It leads to the cursing of all creation. Because Adam was put in charge of all creation. He was given dominion over everything. Before the fall, he was given dominion over the earth and everything in it and all creation. And so God curses everything. He curses the ground. Cursed be the ground. Now, what was Adam made out of? Ground. So his body is cursed. Our bodies are cursed. We're all made of dirt. And the whole creation was cursed. Now, in Romans chapter 8, it says that when Jesus comes back someday, that creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, and that someday even creation itself will be liberated from its bondage decay. So the world was cursed with decay, which is death, cursed with the second law of thermodynamics with death because of Adam's sin, and someday God's going to destroy this creation and make a new heaven and a new earth 
a new creation in which we're going to live, and it's not going to be under the curse of death. It's going to be liberated. How is God going to liberate creation from death? He has to die to pay for every sin. It's not enough to just pay for the sins of the elect who are going to be saved. Even though not everybody accepts Jesus' grace and goes to heaven, he has to die for every sin in order to release creation from the curse. So he has to die for the sins, be a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Okay? He can't release the curse on creation and pay for it and make a new earth that's, that's without death and without sin and without the second law of thermodynamics, without suffering, unless he pays for all sin. He can't just pay for the sins of those who are going to go to heaven. He has to pay for the sins of those who do not, too. So Jesus has to die for the sins of of the whole world. And limited atonement is impossibility. Because Jesus dies for the whole world's sins. He wants everyone to be saved. He's provided a way for everyone to be saved. And who is it that is saved? Those who believe. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. So grace has appeared to all men. It's available for any one of you. And it's available for anyone in the world. Even the people that you've done wrong that, hurt, that have hurt you really bad and have been very wicked towards you. It's, it's available for anyone. The grace of God is available for everybody. And as the old Latin saying, Dum spiro spiro, while there's breath, there's hope. And as long as you're alive, there's hope that you can receive the grace of God. Now, you die or Jesus comes back, game over. You don't got any more opportunity. But while you're alive, you have the opportunity to accept God's grace. And it's appeared to everybody. What that means is God wants you to be saved. And he's gone to extreme lengths to get you there. To the point of death. The whole story of the Bible is God's redemptive plan to save you. He wants you saved. He is working to save you. That's his desire. Well, I don't know if God can forgive what I've done. Oh yeah, he can, and he wants to. Turn to him. Put your faith in him. Believe in him. Now grace teaches us. It says in the scripture... That grace teaches us to say no to some stuff. And to say yes to some other stuff. Grace teaches us some stuff. Um, look what it says in Romans 2.4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. What is the motivation? What is the motivation that changes us? God came down Mount Sinai to Moses. And he gave the law. He says, 
If you do this, you die. If you do that, you die. If you do this, you die. If you do that, you die. He gave us uh, the law, you know, encapsulated most of all in the most common part known is the Ten Commandments. He taught us right from wrong. The law certainly does teach right from wrong. But it didn't cause anybody to obey it. Nobody reads the Ten Commandments and goes, Oh, I want to do that. That sounds like fun. Never lying, never coveting. Oh, goody. I'm so excited. The law and condemnation and fear wasn't enough. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a place for learning the law, and we're going to talk about this balance here in a second. There's a place for godly fear, and there's a need for godly fear. Uh, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of it. And I'll try to explain it in this way. When I was a wee lad, my dad put the fear of the George in me. Um, If I didn't do what I was supposed to do, there was, you know, a spanking. There was that sort of thing. I was afraid of a spanking. I was afraid of discipline. And uh, I respected him for it. Hebrews says that our earthly fathers discipline us as they thought best, and we respect them for it. Respect comes from discipline. If your kids don't respect you, it's because you haven't disciplined them properly. If people don't respect the government, it's because the government hasn't disciplined properly. Discipline creates respect. If a Nobody, if a teacher doesn't have the respect of their students, it's because the students have been disciplined properly before they got there. And, dis, and that creates a respect and a fear. That's, that's a good thing. That's the beginning of wisdom, but it's not the end of it. Because there becomes a point where fear isn't enough. I got to be in high school, and I did the things my dad wanted for the most part. Not because I was afraid of being spanked anymore. He wasn't going to spank me. And I was too big. And if I wanted to not live with my dad, I could go live with my mom and be in a totally discipline-free environment anytime I wanted. Why did I listen to my dad? Because I loved him. Because he loved me. Because he had taught me right and wrong and I disciplined me when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I listened to him out of fear and respect. But as I grew older, I let him down at times. I disappointed him at times. And he loved me through it. Remember the last spanking I got? There was a kid after church on a Sunday night. A church picking on another kid. The kid he was picking on is now the preacher at a church up in Harlands. My brother Todd's preacher. And he was picking on this kid who was much younger. And I reached over and grabbed the kid that was picking on him and grabbed hold of his shirt and twisted it up and lifted him up. And I said, someday someone bigger than you is going to come along and clock you. You better leave that kid alone. And I set him down. I'm I'm telling my dad. Go on. He went inside. He comes back out. You better go inside. You're in trouble with your dad. He's like crying. I'm like, oh boy. So I go in there. And... I'm mad that I'm getting, you know, 
and the the kid's dad's there and 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 dad says what's going on he says well he was picking on uh you know picking on him and and i i just took hold of his shirt and told him that somebody's gonna teach him a lesson if he doesn't stop picking on younger kids and, and dad's like well why'd you hit him i said i didn't hit him and uh the kid's dad's standing there and he's upset and he's like didn't he hit you <laughs> and i remember the kid going no he didn't hit me just what he said and his dad goes, what are you crying for if he didn't hit you? <laughs> I thought he hit you. And I'm like, that's right. I, I didn't hit him. I didn't do anything wrong. And I was just protecting this kid. And I got mad and I stomped out and slammed the door to the church on my way out. Big mistake. And my dad looked over at, um, dad tells me this story later. He looked over at the, uh, at the father and the son. He says, now when I get home, Kendall's going to get a spanking. But it's not because of what he did to you. I'm proud of what he did there. You need to leave that other boy alone. <laughs> he said, he, he said he's going to get a spanking because of how he talked to me. Can't talk to my, your dad that way. And I remember him coming home explaining this to me and spanking me. And I was embarrassed and hurt and upset. I remember I went in the, the kitchen after he spanked me in his office, I went to the kitchen and sat down on the floor and cried. And dad came in. He sat down next to me, put his arm around me, told me he loved me and that he was proud of me and that I just needed to learn to control my anger and never talk to him that way. And that I'm just a boy learning and that he loves me and that he, he's very proud of me and that he liked it that I stood up for the younger kid. It wasn't the spanking that made me want to obey my dad. It was the talk in the kitchen. It wasn't just the discipline taught me right from wrong. That taught me not to talk back to people in authority even if I'm in the right to not disrespectfully talk to him but what taught me to love my dad was the conversation in the kitchen floor not the spanking and God has to discipline us because he loves us and if you love your kids you'll discipline them and God has got some pretty severe discipline for sin it's called death but he also loves us. He also puts his arm around us and says, I know you messed up and I had to discipline you, but I forgive you and I'm proud of you and I love you. And here's a way forward. And his grace, his grace is what makes me love him. It's the fact that I've done detestable things that he had to pay for by dying for me and he still loved me even though I've known better and done wrong. He still loved me. I love him and I love others because he loved me first. It's the love of God that makes me love him. It's the grace of God that teaches me to say no to unrighteousness. It's the 
forbearance, long-suffering, and goodness of God that leads me to repent. It's not the Ten Commandments that leads me to repentance. It's the cross. It's the death. It's the suffering for me. And it's the hope of resurrection. It's the love and the grace of God that motivates me. Do you need to discipline your children? Yes, you do. To teach them right and wrong. And to make grace seem like grace. You see, a parent who doesn't discipline and then gives grace just gets a spoiled brat. And a parent who gives discipline but no love and grace, they get a rebellious child who's bitter. But a person who disciplines and gives love and grace to their child, they get a devoted kid who knows right from wrong. Who loves them back. You've got to have the positive and the negative connected before the battery works. And it is the love of God that teaches us to say no to wrong things. Because ultimately, we should fear hell, and there is a place and there is a time where the fear of hell can motivate us. I don't know about you, but the fear of hell was a big part of me being energized to enthusiastically and quickly uh, become a Christian. But it's not enough to sustain a life of service to Jesus Christ, fear only. And if all the preacher does is hellfire and brimstone sermons, without ever talking about the grace of God, you're going to have a bunch of people who are afraid of God but don't love Him. And if you, all you ever talk about is grace and never about right and wrong, you're going to have a bunch of people who think they're right with God when they're not. And that's mostly what we have today. Between the, the 1920s and the 2020s, We've gone from one of those extremes to the other. And I don't know if we ever stayed very long in the happy medium. We need to understand the grace of God and its importance. But it has to be in the context of the wrath of God and the justice of God. Those two things are both true about God and they have to be balanced. And if we teach cheap grace without repentance, we won't change any lives. And if we teach judgment and wrath without any grace and love, there won't be any change in people's lives. It's the goodness, the long-suffering that lead us to repentance. But you don't understand that God's goodness and His long-suffering nature, if you don't understand how despicable sin is to Him, if you don't understand how much He hates it to the point of death, if you don't understand that Jesus Christ had to come down to earth and suffer the most despicable death known to man in order to redeem you from your damned sins, from the condemnation, from the reprobate, terrible, horrible, disgusting life you've lived. If you don't understand how bad you've been, you can't properly understand how good He is. But when we understand the truth of our sinfulness, 
and then see the grace of God. The grace of God in light of the depravity, the light in relation to the darkness. We see the contrast and we are overwhelmed with a gratitude for the love of God, the long-suffering, patient goodness of God that leads to repentance. And when a kid understands the grace of a parent, the love of a parent, they want to obey the parent. They want to please them. They want to love them. Grace teaches us some things. Well, what does grace teach? According to this passage. So here's where we're going to unwind uh, Paul's... <laughs> man, I'm, I've burned up 45 minutes just on this one little bit. Um, you guys need to listen faster. And this is, this is going to take a minute. Um, what grace teaches us? To deny ungodliness and worldly lust. When you understand what Jesus has done for you and the cost, then you'll understand. You ever know those kids in high school who had rich parents who bought them a brand new Camaro for their first car? Or whatever, you know, I say Camaro, but they bought them a brand new nice car. And then the kid goes out drinking and wraps it around a telephone pole or does something stupid with it, wrecks it. And then you see the kid whose parents didn't buy him anything and he had to get a job and he had to pay for his own insurance and he had to pay for his own car and he went out and he saved up and he bought the old Camaro and then he had to do the Bondo on it and then he had to paint it and he had to fix it up and he had to fix the engine and he put all this work into it and he wouldn't go drinking and driving in that car. In fact, he babied it and took care of it. He appreciated it. Why? Because he had to pay the price to get it and make it nice. And the dangerous thing about grace is, is you don't, when you don't realize what the price was paid. Remember when you got your first job and got that paycheck and you realized how much went to Uncle Sam and how much went to taxes and how little you got and how hard it was to get it? And you're like, wait a second. And then all of a sudden you weren't as flippant with your parents' money. You know, I remember when I was little, my kids would always say, well, just write a check. They had no idea. There was limited funds behind those checks. <laughs> just write a check, yeah. Just use the plastic. It's unlimited, yeah. What do you think I am, Congress? I can't write bad checks like they do. Print money out of thin air. Um, <laughs> drive up inflation. Uh, when you understand the price... You value the purchase. And when we understand the price and the grace of God and what it took, it teaches us to say no to godly, ungodliness and worldly lusts. Then we start to hate it. It hurt my kids. It hurt my spouse. It hurts me. It hurts God. I hate it. I start to hate my sin. And when you realize the cost of your sins, you start to say no. Back in the 80s when I was a kid, old Nancy Reagan, her, her big idea to stop drug abuse was just say no. Turns out that didn't work very well. <sighs> because nobody wants to say, and then they like, well, let's go in 
and let's teach them uh, the dangers. And so they had the D.A.R.E. program. Remember the D.A.R.E. program? And they go in and they have cops go in and tell the kids all the dangers. And it'd scare them, but it wouldn't keep them from doing it. And then they did studies of why some kids do drugs and why some kids don't. And they identified 30 factors. They, they studied over 300,000 teenagers in, in anonymous surveys, who did drugs and who didn't, and then asked them other questions about their life. And there were 30 things that if the more of those things the kid had in their life, the less likely they were to do drugs, alcohol, or tobacco. And those things were things like their grandparents were involved in their life. They went to church once or more a week. Um, they could talk to their parents about their problems. Um, they had uh, good friends who were not involved in drugs. Um, they played a sport. They played a musical instrument. Um, they were involved in extracurricular activities. The things that really stopped kids from having drugs were positive relationships. Not fear, not just say no. What was teaching some kids to say no to drugs and other kids not? The things that were in their life. And it's the grace of a relationship in a life that makes a difference. Um, a Sunday school teacher, a youth minister, uh, a grandparent, other adults in their life, a good teacher, an uncle or an aunt who's there for them. Those kind of things are what makes a difference. And when Jesus Christ is in your life and you know He's real and you know He saved you and you know He died for you, you want to please Him, that teaches you to say no. And to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Why does a Christian chase after sobriety? Because they want to please Christ. Why do they live righteously and godly even though everybody around them are living for the world? Why would they stand out? Why would they get made fun of at school or at work? Why would they be different? Because they're more interested in what Jesus thinks than what the kids at school or the people at work or whoever think. They're motivated by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that relationship becomes dominant in their life. And that's why just learning about the Ten Commandments won't make you make good choices. Just knowing about Jesus won't cut it. Hearing about Jesus won't be enough. You have to know Him. You have to love Him, believe in Him and be seeking after Him. You have to really believe Jesus Christ existed, died on the cross for your sins, was buried and rose again in order to fully grasp and believe in grace in order to get these true motivations to change your life. It turns out you can't really repent properly and find the proper motivation to maintain and sustain a, a godly life until you actually really believe in Jesus. That's why there's a righteousness that comes by faith, not by works. 
And it teaches us something else, to look for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do we have the motivation to sacrifice the things of the world? How is it we can take our money and generously give it to somebody in need or to ministry or to the church? When I mean, hey, if you took 10% of your income, you could go buy something nice. Or you could use it on something you really need. Why would you be tithing? Why would you be giving? Why would you be serving? Why would you spend one of your weeks of vacation working in a week of camp? Why would you give up and sacrifice your life that way? Why would you bother going to church so often? Why would you bother being a Sunday school teacher or getting involved in, in the worship at, at church? Or why would you be involved in some sort of outreach? Or why would you be involved in, in doing some benevolent thing or trying to help uh, you know, uh, young unwed mothers? Why, why would you be involved in these ministries? Because you're looking forward to the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of a great God and Savior Jesus Christ because you know you can sacrifice things here because you're not going to keep what you got here anyway. Your hope is in eternal life in heaven. And if you don't get the dream job or the dream house or the dream spouse or whatever, it's okay because you've got something better in heaven. And if your wife isn't everything you ever dreamed, that's all right. Neither are you. That's okay. And if you're not everything you dreamed, that's all right. You're going to heaven where you'll be perfect, where everything will be perfect. Where every need, every hunger, every desire will be met completely. You're living for the new creation. You're living for the heavenly Jerusalem. You're living for eternity. So the grace of God teaches us to deny our temptations, to live righteously, and to look for heaven. And it teaches us that he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Look, you want to know what God's plan for you is? It's to redeem you from every lawless thing you've ever done redeem means buy back he wants to save you from every little sin you ever committed and the big ones too and not only is he just wanted to pay for that guilt he wants to start working on you as he's paying for your guilt to teach you to weed those things out of your life you know what God, you, what you're trying to do is you're trying to find that spouse or you're trying to get that job or that house or that kid or that life. You've got your dreams that you're trying to chase your dreams and follow your heart. But his desire for you is that you're righteous. He doesn't care how much money you have now. That's not his thing. He wants, he wants to know, are you living a holy life? He's trying to redeem you from your godlessness. He's trying to take you to the next level. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. He's trying to take you to the next level of your walk. He's trying to take you to a deeper understanding of His Word. He's trying to take you to the next level of service. He's trying to move you up closer to Him. He's trying to teach you to be a fisher of men. He's wanting to use you to do good. He's trying to grow you. Well, Kendall, I've been out just 50 years. Well, He's not done with you. You're still here, aren't you? 
Huh? Dumb spiro spiral. While there's breath, there's hope. You can do better. You are in the process of being shaped and molded into the likeness of Christ more and more and more and more every day. You are a work in progress and he is not done. And he gave himself that he can redeem you from that. You want a goal in life that God will bless? You want a goal in life that's in line with the will of God? You want a goal in life that will set you up for success eternally? For happiness, for joy, for peace, and for all the good things that you really desire? Make your goal to remove some more sin from your life. Make your goal, well, I've got this one thing. I, okay, I'm going to be more patient. I'm going to be more kind. I'm going to be more gentle. I'm going to be more giving. I'm going to be more forgiving. I'm going to be a better student. I'm going to be a better speaker. I'm going to be a better servant. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be more of what God wants me to be. And not so that you can get saved because He's already saved you. And not to win His affection. You've already got His affection. Because He has given you His affection and He has given you salvation and He has forgiven you and because you're thankful for that grace that He gave you freely out of gratitude, you want to be more of what He wants. You're not doing it to get redeemed. You're allowing Him to redeem you. Allowing Him to make you a better version of yourself. And some people think that their identity is all tied up in their sin not realizing that who you really are and your real potential is the you without sin. What grace teaches is that He can purify for Himself His own special people. He can make you pure in His sight. See, grace teaches us that we don't have to be perfect to be perfected by Christ. We're not perfect. We're, remember, we're still a work in progress. We're striving towards it. We're aiming for perfection. <laughs> We're not there yet. But He is able to purify you and present you before a glorious God without fault, without any spot or blemish. He is able. I'm convinced that He is able to keep that which He committed. I'm convinced that if you'll put your faith in Him and run after Him, He is able to transform your life. And whatever your addiction is, you can break it. Whatever sin you're struggling with, you can overcome it. Whatever fear you're battling, He can help you overcome that fear. Whatever things are going on in your life, He can give you the answers for it. I am convinced that you can find contentment and happiness and joy in Jesus Christ growing and serving in Him no matter what the circumstances are around you. Even if war break out against you, you can find the blessings of God all around you. I'm convinced that the grace of God, by it He can purify for Himself His own special people and you can be part of it. And what grace teaches us is to be zealous for good works. He purifies for Himself a special people to do what? Good works. You can be a doer of good. Your life, by the grace of God, not by your own power or righteousness, not by your own goodness, but if you will believe in Christ, by His grace, 
He can purify you and redeem you and transform you to where your life adds up to good. Where the sum total of your existence is positive. Now, Abraham sinned when he was here. Did things that are bad. Some of the consequences of Abraham's sin are still going on in the Middle East. We're paying terrible oil prices thanks to Abraham. There's negative things that he did, that, but all those negative things are far outweighed from the positivity that came from the faith of, of Abraham because through Abraham came Jesus and through Jesus came eternal salvation. And the whole world is liberated from its bondage decay that came through the actions of the faith of Abraham. And when you put your faith in God like Abraham did, the totality of your life can be good that far outweighs anything else. Yeah, it's true that when Adam sinned, it brought death into the world. The first Adam brought death. But that second Adam, Jesus Christ, he brought life. And if Adam brought death, how much more does Christ bring life? And the actions of Jesus are more powerful than the actions of Adam. And the power of your faith in Christ is more powerful than your sin. And if you don't have Christ, you'll have ended up making your life and that of others worse. Your life would have been wasted. But if you put your faith in Christ, He will turn your life. He will redeem purify and make you zealous for good works. You see, what grace teaches is not just don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. It doesn't just, grace of God doesn't just make us reject sin. The grace of God teaches us to chase after goodness. To chase after righteousness. To redeem our very actions. Redeem our lives. And start to leverage and utilize every aspect of our being and every blessing God has given for good. God gave me a house. How can I use this house for the kingdom of God? Can I house an orphan and adopt a child? Could I have a Bible study in this house? Do I have room to host the missionary who comes to visit? How can I use this house for the kingdom of God? I've got a truck. How can I use this truck for the kingdom of God? Who needs something hauled? Who needs something moved? How can I use, who can I loan this to? I've got a nice swimming pool. In my, how, what kind of swimming party can I host? What, how, can I, how, can I do, how can I have the neighbor kids over and let them use my pool and then share the gospel with them? How can I utilize? I've been given this job. How, how can I minister to my boss? How can I serve my boss? How can I stand out so that my boss says they really appreciate me? The, I'm the best worker they got so that I can then say, well, that's because Jesus Christ saved me from my sins and he wants to save you too. How can you leverage every blessing that you have? How can you spend the money in your bank account the wisest way for the kingdom of God? How can you leverage your marriage, your relationship, your children, whatever it is, your love, your passion, you play an instrument. 
How can you leverage that for the kingdom of heaven? You're handy. You're gifted with your hands. How can you leverage that for the kingdom of heaven? You're a good cook. How can you leverage that? How can I do good in this world? That's the passion, the desire, the beat of the heart. And because people don't understand the the depth, the height, the width, and the length of God's grace, they're not dying to serve. And we put out our little list, sign up to help here. And nobody wants to help and nobody wants to serve because they don't understand the grace of God. If they did, they'd be dying for ways to serve, even in ways that they're not even good at. Well, I'm not a very good cook, but somebody needs to do that. I'm not a very good teacher, but I'm teaching that Sunday school class. I'm not, I don't know if I'm good with kids, but I'm volunteer for the junior high. Woo-hoo. Uh, grace makes us zealous. And where there's a lack of desire to repent of sin, where there's no battle against the flesh, when there's no seeking to be godly, when there's no thinking about heaven and dreaming of heaven, when there's no being redeemed from all the lawless habits that we have, when there's no purifying for ourselves and seeing ourselves as a set-apart people different than the world, and when there's no zealousness for good works, there's a lack of understanding and comprehension, not of the law, but of the grace of God. And that's why we preach the good news, not the bad news. That's why we preach death, burial, and resurrection to lost people. Because it's death, burial, and resurrection that motivates the transformation in a Christian's life. And you want to motivate people? They can't love Jesus until they understand how much Jesus loves them. Show them. Let's take our break and we'll come back. Chapter 2 and verse 15. Let's get started here. Grab your seats. Um, so he tells him, uh, uh, he writes this information, packs a lot in a single sentence there, a little paragraph. And, um, and then he says this to Titus. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So exhort means encourage. Rebuke means rebuke. Uh, It's the idea of teach these things, the positive things, encourage them, the negative things, rebuke them with all authority. Let no one despise you. So he's writing to a young preacher, giving him advice about how to lead these congregations, set up elderships, what to teach the older men, what to teach the older women, what to teach the younger men, what to have the older women teach the younger women. He's giving all these instructions. And then he says to teach these things, 
to exhort them and rebuke them. And we'll come back to this idea again. We've seen it in 1 Timothy. We've seen it here in Titus. We're going to see it again in 2 Timothy. This idea of a good preacher has positive things to say and negative things to say. You can't do your job as a teacher of God's Word without encouraging and without rebuking. It's just impossible. There has to be both. Just like with a good parent. Uh, Anybody in leadership... You've got to both exhort and rebuke. And there's wise ways and foolish ways to do both. So, um, this isn't saying how to do it right here, other than in this way, with authority. With all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to... How could Titus have all authority? Any authority of a church leader, or any leader really, is delegated. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18. He came and spoke to them, the them there is the eleven. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So how much, how much authority does Jesus have? Well, how much on earth? Well, how much up in the spiritual realm in heaven? Okay, so Jesus has got all power and all authority. So all authority belongs to him. So all authorities are derived from God. The government's authority is derived from God. The, we're going we, we're gonna to see that the government authorities derive their power from God. God established them. You know, we first, you know, uh, Romans 13. And then a parent, their responsibilities and authority comes from God. A husband's authority comes from God. Um, All the authorities, and the authorities in church come from God. Now, those people who are put into authority are going to be held accountable for how they use their authority. If a government leader abuses his power, then he's going to be held accountable for that. Because he has the authority to do God's will with that, but not his own. Likewise, a parent has the authority to do the things that a parent does, but they don't have the authority to teach the kid to steal, or teach the kid to lie, or teach the kid to murder. The parent's authority is limited It's not universal. Same with a a husband or the authority of a church leader. Uh, Elders, turns out, are not a council of dictators who have absolute authority over a church. In fact, they're commanded in Scripture in multiple places to not lord it over the church. And an eldership who pushes not God's will, but their own will on the people is going to answer to God for that infraction. The authority of a human being is limited. But when it comes to teaching, correcting and rebuking, encouraging, exhorting and rebuking regard to the things that Paul told uh, Titus, he has all authority in that realm. In other words, Timothy, 
anything I've taught you here, you exhort them and rebuke them to follow it. And in that regard, in regard to what I have taught you, you have all the authority to demand what I have taught you. So as an evangelist myself, ordained by the elders, I have the authority to exhort and encourage and rebuke people to do whatever the scriptures say. Now if it's my opinion, I don't have that authority. But if it's a thus saith the Lord, I have that authority. And it's up to me, I'm going to be held responsible for differentiating between the two. And so when it comes to the teachings of Paul, he had that authority. Now, well, why should he listen to Paul? Look what Jesus says to the apostles. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is going to speak to the apostles the truth from God, and he's going to confer that authority from God the Father. The authority of God the Father, through the authority of the Holy Spirit, is going to speak about Jesus Christ, and who has all authority in heaven and earth. And he's going to teach them all things and it's going to be complete truth. Whatever the apostles taught and they've laid it out for us in the 27 books of the New Testament is the will of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. And as that's laid out and made clear, he has put into position leadership roles such as elders and evangelists these pastor teachers whose job is to convey the teachings of the apostles and prophets relayed in the New Testament. And how much authority does a preacher have or an elder have to teach those things? All. So when it comes to what Paul told Titus, he said, teach what I've just taught you, encourage him in it, Rebuke them in it with all authority. There is a chain of command, if you will. Now, do I have the authority to change it? Do I have the authority to add to it? Do I have the authority to take away from it? So if Jesus said, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, who's going to be saved? Whoever believes and is baptized. If Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who's going to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit? The person who repents and is baptized. If the scriptures say to, uh, that, uh, if the apostle Peter says that baptism saves you not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a good conscience towards God, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who's gone into heaven with angels and authorities and powers into submission to him. If Peter says that, then what's that mean? It means a baptism saves you when you do it for the right reason from the heart. That's not my opinion. That's what Peter said. And when I teach what Peter said, I have all authority. What I don't have the authority to do is to think, well, I know it says to be baptized there, but I think he'll probably let it slide if you're not. 
That's, I don't have the authority to make that call. I have the authority to teach God's will. Elders have the authority to hold the church to God's will. They don't have the authority to force their opinion on the church. In fact, they're told not to do that. And if you're the preacher of the church, you have the authority to tell them to stop it. Because the Bible commands them not to, and you're supposed to teach that with all authority. The authority is derived from the Word of God. And your preacher and your elders have the authority to hold us accountable to the Word of God, but not to their own opinions. And there's a difference. Who are you to tell me what to do? Oh, I'm nobody. But you better do what God's Word says. Because He's somebody. And He's put me here to tell you what it says. So to teach with all authority. Because who is guided in all truth? Kendall? No, Kendall has not been guided in all truth. Who is guided in all truth? The apostles and prophets. Your 27 books of the New Testament, that's your measuring stick. And when I say something, you better look at the Bible and make sure that's what it says. Because Kindle isn't inspired. Those 27 books are. You better make sure that what I'm teaching you is accurate. You better double check. Because that's what we're all going to be held accountable to. But if I get up and preach something and you don't like it, it hurts your feelings, it makes you mad. But it's what it says. Better listen. The authority of the evangelist. Look at 1 Timothy 4.11. These things command and teach. What things? The things that Paul wrote. And these things command that they are, may be blameless. What things? The things that Paul wrote. Preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Don't go into the ministry if you're not ready to suffer long. <laughs> Just saying. Preach the pop psychology. No. Preach the ideas of men. No. Preach the latest book from the popular Christian author. No. Preach the word of God. Be ready when it's in season and out of season. When it's popular and when it's not. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching I think about things that I've taught in this class so far in this first second Timothy class and I think boy if some people saw these YouTube videos woo, we get a big dislike oh thank you appreciate that <laughs> thank you thank you um, the authority of the evangelist is based on teaching the word of God and it stops there. And we need to get, be real careful because the temptation is to go off on our opinions. And it's okay to give your opinion 
as long as you differentiate and say, now this is my opinion. But the Bible doesn't say. You know, I have my opinions about things. There's some things that my conscience won't let me do, but I don't have a clear, thus saith the Lord, so I don't preach about it. I've, uh, I never got up and preached that you shouldn't have a Christmas tree. But you don't ever see one in my house. I don't preach it because it's my opinion. It's not of thus saith the Lord. I differentiate between uh, the will of God and the will of Kindle. You need to do the same. Differentiate between your opinion and what God's Word says. There's authority. I mean, I know a church. I know a church where um, they have a rule that there can be no drums on the stage of the church. I'm like, people get up and sing specials every week at that church to tracks with drums. But you can't have them on the stage. And the church has gone from 180 to 60 over the past four years. And why? there's leaders that are lording over the flock. Forcing their opinions on things. Giving, having their meetings and giving their edicts. And there's nothing in the Bible about that. They just made up rules. Because they're the elders and everybody has to respect the elders. And they rule the church. Differentiate between your opinion and thus saith the Lord. You know one of the things that was made my dad such a successful parent is he did that with me and my, my brothers and sisters. He didn't like my music, but he bought me the guitar and the recording. He went up to the attic of the parsonage and drywalled the attic so I could go up there and play music way far away where he couldn't hear it as much. It was pretty loud. Uh, he didn't like how I dressed. He didn't like how I did my hair. But he didn't make me do it his way. But when it came to something like uh, Thus saith the Lord, he was all over it. He held me to God's word, not to his will. And that's why he was a good parent. And that's good leadership. Tell the difference between, uh, you know, I guess the only thing that I ever really wanted to do, my dad didn't let me do in high school, is get a motorcycle. And he said, he said, well, I'm just afraid of you having an accident. He says, you love playing guitar. If you had a wreck and messed up your hand and couldn't play guitar, I just couldn't forgive myself. I said, Dad, don't you trust me? You bought me three-wheelers and go-karts and mini-bikes. I mean, I learned to ride motorcycles because you bought them for me. He said, well, that was on our own property. He says, I trust you. I just don't trust the people in traffic. <laughs> he says, when you're an adult, you can get a motorcycle if you want. Okay. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Because I wanted. <laughs> um, but even then, he was doing what he believed was 
right for me. And we need to really make sure that we are holding to God's will. As a side note, he let my brother Jeff get a motorcycle when he was in high school. He was older than me. So 10 years before me, Jeff had a motorcycle. And Jeff tells, the way Jeff tells it today is this. In fact, we, we were just talking about this at Thanksgiving last year. Jeff said, Dad didn't let Kendall and Todd get motorcycles because they were so stupid. <laughs> but he knew that I was, I had the fear of life in me and that I wouldn't be dumb on a motorcycle so let me get one. <laughs> <laughs> to which I replied, no, he just cared what happened to me, not you. <laughs> he didn't care if you busted your hand up. Either. Um, when we come to Christ, we have to make sure that we're building on a godly foundation. We talked about earlier how Christ is the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets are the rest of this foundation. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then we've got to line ourselves up with it. And we need to make sure as church leaders, because this is an instruction manual for preachers. I know most of you aren't preachers or elders or deacons but, or any, any, any kind of church leadership. But church leaders need to make sure that as teachers and conveyors of God's word, and if you're a Sunday school teacher maybe, or, or you're a parent who teaches your kids the Bible, you need to make sure that you are conveying God's word. It's okay to give your opinion. It's okay to have your opinion. Um, but you need to make sure that what you're standing on is the solid foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would inspire them. They're the, the, the measuring of what's right and what's wrong. And that's where we have authority to speak. That's where we have authority to take a stand on God's word. And um, make sure that you're standing on the right thing. Okay? All right, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, even on Facebook? Yes, even on Facebook. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So we want to be ready for every good work. We learned at the end of the last chapter that he's redeemed for himself a special people to do good works. We're saved by grace to do good works, Ephesians. And we want to be a people ready to do good work. How? Well, first of all, we need to be subject to authorities. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good and you'll, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. 
But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, what's a sword used for? Tickling people? No. They're for killing people. The government has the authority of capital punishment from God. He doesn't bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Now, the Bible says to leave room for God's wrath and to not take vengeance to us. Right? Romans chapter 12. The chapter right before this is where it says, um, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, saith the Lord. And tells us not to take vengeance. Just one chapter before. Who's, who does vengeance belong to? God. Is it our place as Christians or as individuals to take vengeance? No. We are not in the vengeance business. We're in the grace business. We're the church. God has an avenger. Who is God's avenger? No, it's not Iron Man. Who is God's avenger? The government. It is the government's place to give vengeance. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For the sake of your conscience, you should obey the government because it's God's authority. For this, because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore all that are due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. And honor to whom honor is due. Pay your taxes. Pay your customs. Uh, pay your... Uh, give respect. Give fear. Give honor. When the judge walks in the room, you stand up. You call him your honor. You refer to the officer as officer. I remember when I was little, dad wouldn't let us call cops cops. We had to call the police officers because the cop in his mind was disrespectful. Uh, there need to be taught in churches to respect the government, to respect law and order. That's from God. God gave the family. God gave government. And God gave the church. Those three divine institutions are from God. They derive their authority from God. And to rebel against them is to rebel against God. Now, if a husband is beating the snot out of the kids and the wife, is it okay for the wife to leave that husband? Yes. If a government is killing its own people or taking advantage of its own people, is it right to rebel against the government? Yes. We have a constant cases of uh, believers doing that all through. I mean, when they, when they told Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, bow down, did they do it? When they told Daniel, you can't pray to God, did he, did he do it? You know, when they told the apostles, stop preaching in Jesus' name, did they quit? The government has limited authority. Where the government has legit authority, submit. When the government usurps authority and tries to get you to do something God says not to do or tells you you can't do something God says to do, that's when you rebel. Okay? And so, um, if a government becomes so grievous and it's abuse of the people, is it okay to replace a government? Yes. When? When the government is not punishing the evildoer 
and praising the doer of good, but instead is punishing the person who does good and praising the person who does evil. Because that's the legitimate role of government. It just says it right there. It also says it in 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter 2, 13 and 17. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And the word for ordinance there um, is almost better translated as institution. Um, it has, it's not an ordinance we think of as a law, but this is more than a law. It's a, it's a law, uh, a lawful institution or organization. So I, the little A there by ordinance, I think if you look up the A there by ordinance, it's going to say institution. Somebody have a, I don't know what you might have in your translate. What's your translation say? There we go. So institution of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as the supreme authority or the governors as those are sent by him for punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do good. Now I have two passages of the Bible that tell me the role of government. What is the proper role of government? Punish bad people, reward good people. So the laws of government should not punish a person for being, say, successful in business. The laws of government should not uh, reward people who do dumb, bad things. And isn't that a part of the problem with our government today is we're rewarding bad behavior and punishing good behavior? We've got it backwards. The government should reward and praise good behavior and punish bad behavior. That's legitimate role of government is to govern between people and their interactions and make sure that they're fair and if somebody is unjust to their neighbor to punish them for it and if they're good to reward them for it. that's legitimate role of government according to the bible we got two passages saying that so the, the verses that tell us to submit to government also tell us what good government and bad government look like For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free, not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So it's right to honor government leaders. Well, what if the government leader is uh, not the best? You still honor him because he's in the position of leadership. What if the cop talks to me like a jerk? You still talk to him with respect. What if my school teacher talks to me like a jerk? You still talk to him or her with respect. What if, what if, uh, the, the, um, what if the, the government leader is, uh, you know, uh, somebody I don't like? Is it okay if I make... Uh, rude comments about them all the time on social media? Probably not. Had a guy in my church whose son-in-law posted on Facebook, I'm done with the church. They're, um, they're all just a bunch of Trump-loving Biden haters. And he's obviously a, a Biden fan on that political spectrum. So because of people's politics comments, he was being driven away from Christ. And that's one of the reasons I'm not on Facebook. It's because I have the hardest time resisting the temptation to point out what buffoons and talk bad about people. 
Because it's so insane what's going on in the world right now. And we can destroy our witness just by pointing out how stupid people are. I'm not saying they're not stupid. I'm not even saying they're not worthy of derision. I'm saying it's wrong for a Christian to be doing it. We want to be ready to do good works. Look what Ephesians says. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. There's enough people doing bad works. There's enough negativity. There's enough hate. There's enough uh, people spewing out bad things about other people. There's enough people pointing out false. There's enough people talking mean and, and sarcastically and, and wicked. We don't need to join in the fray. What we need are some people to do good. That's what's rare in this world. There's enough darkness to go around. We need some light up in here. It says in 2 Thessalonians, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And he goes on to say, because you'll reap a harvest of righteousness in due time. One of the reasons we grow weary in doing good is we do good, we do good, we do good, and we don't see any result. And we're like, well, when, when's it going to turn out good? You know, sometimes the ultimate good that we do, we won't see till after we're dead and gone. The real ramifications of Jesus' ministry were not felt until after his death. And the long-lasting legacy of the apostles was not truly hit until they were dead and gone. I mean, the world was not at the level of Christian influence that it got to after the apostles were dead and gone. And the real impact of what you've done might not happen in your lifetime. And you have to be willing to do good on faith. That if I keep doing good, it'll work out somehow, some way, it'll add up to something. It'll be worth it in the end. There might be some people that get towards the end of their Christian walk and they're like, I've been serving God all these years and it just seems like everything I've built's crumbled away. Not realizing the reverberations that went far beyond what they expected and all the lives of people that, that they touched far beyond the scope of their perception. You cast a teeny pebble and it's going to send waves way out far. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And there will be, a, there'll be consequences for every little thing. And the Bible says, you cast your bread on the waters, it'll come back to you in many days. It says the word of God will never come back void. And if you teach the love and the word of God and you love people, it will not be without effect. In your life and in the lives of others. Don't grow weary doing good just because everything around you seems to be falling apart because so many people are doing bad. Don't think that your good isn't making a difference. We need to be good in how we speak. It says, speak evil of no one. We don't need to be talking evil about people. You know, we could go into any room and find fault with people. You know? We don't have to say every negative thing we know. We don't have to go up to people and say, you know, you're fat. You know, you're ugly. You know, your breath stinks regularly. We don't need to go tell everybody all these things. 
And some things we don't need to point out because everybody knows them and sees them. You don't have to go around pointing out every little thing. You don't have to go around talking about people. About, well, you know what they did once. Well, you know, you know what happened with them. Did you hear about their marriage? Well, you know. Stop speaking evil of people. There's enough people doing it. There's, you know, there's already TMZ. They got the corner on the market. Stop speaking evil of people. That's what you know, Twitter and, and, and Facebook, and uh, they've got that all wrapped up. Part of the problem of social media is there's so much negativity. I can't handle it. I can't stomach it. It's not good for me spiritually. I had to get off of there. We need to be light. And how we speak is important. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. An evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you're listening to, and what you're feeding yourself, and what you store up in your heart, is going to come back out your mouth. And if you're storing up anger, bitterness and resentment and sarcasm and contempt it's going to boil out your mouth and if you're storing up love and goodwill good intentions and grace and kindness and mercy and love it's going to come up out of your mouth whatever you store up in your heart you're going to regurgitate you're going to say it it says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. You want to know what destroys marriages? Cheating. No. I've seen people cheat and forgive and come back and have a stronger marriage. Uh, differences of opinion. No, I've seen people disagree and still stay married. Here's what it is. Contempt. What it calls malice there. You know why we're so divided as a country right now more than we've ever been in my lifetime? How about your lifetime? It's malice. As a Christian evangelist, I want to rebuke any of you in here who are hating Democrats. And if you're a Democrat, stop hating Trump. Stop hating. And people can say, well, the Democrats started it with Hillary. Or they can say, oh, it's Trump. Trump started You can blame cast all day. I don't care who started it. You stop. Stop having contempt for people who Jesus died for. Stop hating people Jesus wants to save. How could we win them with the love of Christ and the grace of Christ while we are talking contemptuously and hateful to them on Facebook and mocking them? You say, well, they deserve it. Maybe. But what did you deserve before Jesus Christ died for you? What did you deserve when you were in your sin? What did you deserve? 
It's not about what they deserve. Well, those Trump supporters, they get what they're, a Trump, he gets me. That's God's business. The vengeance stuff, remember? Ours is to get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. I see people so eager to um, post something about, they'll, they'll, and this is one of the things that the devil loves to do. He'll, he'll make up some story about Hillary Clinton that isn't true, and somebody will post it out there, and then everybody will post it, and then the, the fact checkers will come along, oh, that's not true, and they all look stupid. And then when Hillary has really done other things that are true, no one will believe that because, oh, it's probably just another Republican lie. And the same thing with Trump. I mean, they had Trump doing all kinds of things. Russian collusion baloney. It was all a lie. It's all proven to be a lie. The whole shebang was a lie. And how many Democrats posted it? And that doesn't just happen with Democrats. That happens with Republicans posting stuff about uh, Democrats. And it foams up this hatred. I mean, to the brink of violence in our cities. I mean, last summer, we saw them literally burning cities down. Because we foamed up all... Christians, we can't be a part of this. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. Be ready to forgive, love, even before the repentant, anybody. James 4.11 Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then you're going to come under judgment. The law is going to judge you. Stop speaking evil of people. Especially. Especially people in the church. Stop gossiping. Would you hear what the preacher did this week? Did you hear what the elders decided the other night? Did you, hear, did you see what the... Oh, look at these. Oh, did you hear about the elder's son? Did you hear about this person? Did you hear about... Keep biting and devouring. You're going to devour each other and destroy each other. Stop speaking evil of people. There's enough of that. Speak good. Look what it says in Colossians. And you who were once alienated, alienated from who? Who are you alienated from? And enemies in your mind because of your wicked works. What kind of works did you do? Yet now he has reconciled you. How did he reconcile you? In the body of his flesh through death. So him dying on the cross, through that he reconciles you to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. So now you're holy, you're a saint in His sight, not because of what you did, because of what He did on the cross. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast and are not moved from the hope held out in the Gospel. What did you used to be? 
an enemy, alienated. But what did he do while you were yet a sinner? He died for you. So how about these people that we consider so evil, these evil sinners who oppose our politics, these evil people who we don't like, or this evil person in church who, God forbid, wants to do something with the color of the carpet that you don't like. What if, while you still disagreed with them and thought they were in the wrong, you're willing to die for them? Willing to love them? To pray for them and and want good for them? To be forgiving and gracious and kind. And where they're stupid, be gracious towards them because you've been stupid. And where they're sinful, be gracious towards them because you've been sinful. And where they're selfish, be gracious towards them because there's times you've been selfish. And when they're slow to learn, be patient with them because you were slow to learn and God was patient with you. What if you forgave them the way God forgave you? What if you gave them the same grace that God gave you? What if you passed the grace along so they could understand the grace of God that comes from you and they too could say no to ungodliness and get all the benefits we listed that come from understanding God's grace? Because you showed them grace instead of judgment in your speech. What if your words were gracious? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. The same grace that God gave you, waiting for you to come around, give that to others. The same patience He had for you till you repented, have for others. The same blessings that He gave you even before you became a Christian, give to others. The kindness that Christ showed you, His willingness to even go to the cross for you, show others. Offer your lives as living sacrifices. Matthew 6.15 But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's the words of Jesus. The grace you give is the grace you'll get. And the measure you use will be measured back on you you so before you post that ugly thing on facebook ask yourself what would jesus have me do what would jesus have me say i'm not saying you shouldn't have political posts or that you shouldn't point out lies or that you shouldn't stand up for the truth in politics or make a difference i'm saying stop posting ugly spiteful sarcastic mean things. Give the same grace we received. I'm not saying don't stand up for the truth. I'm saying be gracious in how you say it. Verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, towards all men appeared not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewing of the holy spirit whom he poured out on us abundantly through jesus christ our savior having been justified by his grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life 
We're going to end tonight with where we started. He has a kindness and a grace towards all. Now we started off talking about the Reformed theology, the Calvinism idea that he only has love and grace towards the elite chosen ones that he will save and everybody else can go to hell and he doesn't care. That's wrong theology. Look what it says in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God which brings salvation has appeared to all men. His kindness and love is towards all mankind. 1 Timothy 4.10 For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. When the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, towards man appeared. It is not just for a few it is for everyone. You say, well, that's what I believe, Kendall. I believe whosoever will may come. I believe anybody can be saved. I believe God sometimes even saves people that we would, like the Apostle Paul, who you would never believe. He was the biggest persecutor of the church and he saved him. And he, he can save anybody. I, I believe that. Then stop acting like you're in Reformed theology where somebody who doesn't agree with you is somehow one of the non-elect and you can treat him like dirt, like God doesn't love them. Stop acting like God doesn't love Democrats or God doesn't love Trump supporters or God doesn't love fill in the blank. Stop treating contemptuously people who just happen to be trapped in other sins than the sins that you were trapped in. God loves people, all people. And I don't care how bad they've been. I don't care what kind of murderous, evil, wicked, pervert they've been. God can and wants to save them. Love the people God loves. Guess who that is? Everyone. And the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared. Is it appeared in you? Is there a kindness and a love towards all mankind in you? The kindness and the love of God has appeared. And it's not by our works. It's not what they've done. It's not because they share our politics or they share our skin color or they share our sexual uh, orientation or they share our morality. It's because they share in the fact that they're humans created in God's image who He loves and who He wants to save and redeem and get them to be, do good works. Not by our works, but by His mercy, He saved us. Look, it says, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for our sins, but also for the whole world. He's the propitiation. He's the guilt offering. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. See, it's not according to our works, but according to His own purpose. What's His purpose? Who's He want to save? Everyone who will, whosoever will may come. That's His purpose. To seek and save the what? Lost. Romans 3.28 Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from deeds of the law. It's not by keeping the Ten Commandments that we get saved and go to heaven. Because none of us have even come close to keeping it. 
We've all broken most of them, and the ones we haven't broken, in reality, we've broken our heart. It's by mercy that we were saved. By Him showing us mercy. So how are we going to share the message of salvation with others? By showing wrath and bitterness and talking ugly about others? Or by what? Showing mercy ourselves. Be a conduit through which flows the grace and love of Christ to a very undeserving world. To all mankind. Even the ones that we might consider wretches of society. You know? The lowest of the low. The sinners. The thieves. The murderers. The warmongers. The prostitution. The molesters. You know? The, you know, killers. The Justin Bieber fans. I don't care how low they go. Everybody is who God loves. And so everybody is who we should love. So do we preach the truth? Yes. Do we rebuke and encourage? Yes. Do we try to do good and and seek righteousness? Yes. But do we hate people who don't? Do we treat contemptuously people who disagree? Absolutely not. Treat them graciously. We've got to tell them the truth. But like, like I always say, you can contend for the faith without being contentious. I would say watch your words. But your words are just going to be what's ever in your heart. So I'm not going to say watch your words. I'm going to say Watch your heart. As the Old Testament said, guard your heart. From it flows the things of life. Take a look in your heart and make sure that what's there for your fellow man is love. Father in heaven, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the letter that Paul wrote Titus. I pray that uh, you would bless us as we continue to study this book and uh, 2 Timothy and you would, you would just take us deeper, Lord, and give us a richer understanding. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.